Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. I just watched one of Pulp Fiction for the first time in quite a while. I picked up the new 4K disc, and that uh, guy looks fantastic. What, 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 how does it hold up in terms of, um, you know, um, how does it hold up, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because I feel like that movie has aged strangely with me over the years. I like, I, you know, I loved it initially, and then I remember seeing it, and maybe it was just because there was too many, you know, too much reference to it for a while or something. And I remember I, I, for some reason felt kind of sick of it. And, but watching it this time, I mean, it just felt fresh and fun and almost like the first time again. Mm. And, uh, you know, like all that cleverness and kind of fun storytelling and jumping back and forth, all it it felt new again, which was kind of cool. Well, that's interesting. That's I mean, yeah, I went to see it at the cinema like two or three times, I think when it first came out, I was just absolutely bowled over by it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I've never watched it and sort of, it's never lost that for me. I feel like I've, uh, there was so many imitators that was slightly the, the the worry that it would, was sort of draining, you know, there was what's 24 hours in the Valley, a day in the Valley, was it called? I remember was one with and James Spader and there was just a whole bunch that were, that came soon yep. afterwards. I knew that was part of it, and and that too it was always kind of fun to see. I mean, right? You can never get sick of Sam Sam Jackson, but I mean, it was kind of fun to see 
you know, I don't think I'd, I don't remember the last time I watched John Travolta in anything, you know, he's been kind of, you know, out of the, you know, doing these smaller movies and kind of not really in the, so it was kind of fun to see him, you know, prime Travolta again and, and some of these people. What's weird, what's weird about looking back on it now, actually, is how young John Travolta is. And yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I remember watching it and thinking, oh, what's that has been doing? You know, and then thinking, right. he's, he's not that old. He's like in his 40s, I think. Right, right, yeah. Because, yeah, he was, I mean, he, right, he, he kind of broke onto the scene. He was like a teen, you know, early 20s. And it's like in the 90s, he had this like resurgence and all these, these kind of interesting movies and action movies and all kinds of stuff. Uh, which was cool. Just yeah, reminded me of how many of those it's been so long since I had seen, you know, like Face Off and Broken Arrow and like all these movies he was in that were like really fun that I want to revisit. Yeah, Broken Arrow. I remember watching that a load of times. John Woo, isn't it? Yeah, actually, both of those. Are, yeah, wasn't yeah. Face Off? Yeah, also? Face Off is, is John Woo as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, interesting stuff for sure. Okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to actually probably just keep all of this in because i haven't got much time to edit anything so apologies to the listeners because this is all going to probably just be in in a completely unedited way maybe a lop a little bit off at the very beginning but um for, i'll just start with hey, candid fun conversations always fun yeah exactly exactly so um i'll just introduce myself basically um Hello, everybody. Welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking to Chris Yogurst. How did I do? Did I nail the pronunciation? Yep. You nailed oh, it. Brilliant. Excellent. Uh, he is the author of a, uh, uh, well, he's going to be the author of a book which is coming out next year about a history of Warner Brothers, right, Chris? Yep. But we yeah, are. We have the Warner Brothers. Brilliant. Excellent. Um, but today we're going to talk about a book that is already available and which uh, I would highly recommend. Um, Hollywood. Uh, right. I'm going to I'm going to ganal the uh, the title, but it's Hollywood versus. No, Hollywood hates Hitler. Yes. Yeah. It's it's a, and it's got a very long subtitle. And that was this was an incredibly difficult book to find the title. Just because it's, you know, when people would say, oh, what are you working on? And it's like, oh, a book about the 1941 Senate investigation into motion picture propaganda. It's like, I'm already out of breath. Like, what, do, <laughs> yeah. what, do I, what do we call this thing? Um, yeah, Hollywood hates Hitler just seemed to make sense because that's really kind of what brought all of this together. Right. Absolutely. And I, I, I just was absolutely uh, amazed by this but before we, before we get into the book let's i just want to uh, find out a little bit more about you as a writer and how you how you got into writing about film what was your sort of uh, introduction to to sort of approaching cinema in this way um so when i was you know i i you know i you know i i fell in love with movies really i mean as a child of the 80s when we were talking about these action movies earlier you know i you know i fell in love with movies just you know in the, in the posters behind me i know you're we're not on video um uh, on your podcast but i mean you know raiders of the lost ark and ghostbusters i mean the, you know these big movies of that decade just really drew me in uh and then i remember um renting on vhs out of curiosity psycho Mm. Um, and it was one of the first, I mean, I, you know, I'd also grown up on monster movies. I loved the black and white Godzilla movies and stuff. So I had, had a little courage to, to look at this old black and white movie as a, as a pretty young guy, how old, well, I don't know, I was probably 12 or 13 or 14. Uh, and I was just floored by this, you know, this old movie that, um, did not feel old, you know, it looked old, it was black and white, 
but it did not, it felt as immediate uh, as anything else I was watching at the time. Um, and, you know, through, you know, kind of fast forward into studying film in college, I was, you know, I really got into genre and the history of genre and stuff like that. Uh, and slowly I got into, uh, you know, the histories of the studios and, and how, you know, look, when I was looking at how movies evolved over time, I started to get more interested in how the movies represented their, the time in which they were released. So I started to look more for historical connections when a movie came out. And that really is kind of what led to, you know, my, the kind of writing I'm doing now where I'm looking at how movies are uh, either representing or interacting with the history in which they're released, and which is exactly what we have going on with this book. And that's also what drew me to, to writing about the Warner Brothers is because, you know, a lot of people have written about the Warner Brothers studio as, as the movies that are, you know, they're always ripped from the headlines. They're the very topical movies. They're the kind of gritty, real down to earth movies. And what I wanted to do was write a book about how that was definitely a top-down influence. The brothers were embodied that in everything they did. Uh, and there's, there's so much that still isn't in a lot of books that I wanted to kind of synthesize. Um, so, you know, that's really, I think, what, what draws me to a lot of the research that I do now is, is how is kind of a, a, a parallel between the history of Hollywood and just world history. You know, where do the movies come in in pivotal moments, stuff like that. Mm. It's interesting as well, if it, just reading your book, it was really interesting how there are these dominant personalities who really, as you say, have these top-down effects on the movies being produced. And I'm, I'm sort of thinking these days we don't really have that. I mean, when Netflix makes decisions and A24 and I, I, I guess with the comic book movies, you maybe have Kevin Feige as a, as a sort of visible personality, but we don't, we don't tend to talk about studio heads anymore, uh, sort of leading, you know, leading the charge leading the the direction of the studio that that's true that's true and i think that's another reason i'm fascinated with the, this this kind of history because we have these larger than life personalities and uh i mean was it yesterday or the day before it was spielberg's birthday you know there's a lot of talk about you know we have we have a few filmmakers left that kind of have this influence and uh you know i'm just trying to think of you know people that have come up in the last few decades. I mean, I guess, you know, something like, um, you know, with horror movies, you got like Jason Bloom, you got these kind of, you know, people who have, who have kind of overseen kind of a large uh, output of movies that have a very specific style. You know, you know what, you know what you're getting into with the Bloom house horror movie. Mm. Um, but you're right. This is, you know, it's, it's more few and far between. Whereas, you know, in, in the, the golden age of Hollywood, these personalities, they, they ran the show, right. They were everywhere, every studio, every independent production. Um, and, and also largely across popular culture, you know, the influence of, you know, like with this book, you know, these kinds of politicians and stuff. Uh, comes across differently. You know, I'm just, I'm reading a book right now. There's this new fantastic book by Beverly Gage about J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, and it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating how much influence and impact he had and how, you know, I always knew he was a larger than life figure, but not <laughs> reading this book. I didn't realize how much I didn't know. Uh, and there's these, just these monumental 20th century figures. Um, and uh, Hollywood was right at the center of a lot of it. Mm. 
Mm. I got a feel, feeling for, uh, when I interviewed George Stevens Jr. earlier this year. Um, you know, he's a, a guy who had one one foot in Hollywood, one foot in Washington, and you know, it was complete. Yes. You know, just uh, it was such an honor talking to him because it felt like you know you, you talked to Kennedy, and now you're talking to me. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry how your right. life has gone, but wow, what a what an amazing you know what an amazing experience. Yeah, that that memoir was amazing. I, mm. I was that, that was yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, there's a lot actually a lot of parallels between that book and the Hoover book in, in that you just every page you just can't believe the next thing this person is tied to. And of course, mm. G, George Stevens Jr. is a far lot better person than J. Edgar Hoover. I'll just clarify that. <laughs> Two very different people. Um, but yeah, George and and how how modest he remains, George Stevens, right? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was put in touch with him. My editor at, at Kentucky is, was, is, was a friend of his, Pat McGilligan and uh, who you also interviewed. Yeah. So, you know, yes. Pat. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, and he put me in touch with, with George just to ask some stuff about Warner brothers and just to clarify a couple things. And it's just, yeah. How incredibly just down to earth and modest he is. And when you read this stuff that he's done throughout his life, uh, it's just, it's, it's, he's on a whole nother level. No, absolutely, absolutely. He, I mean, he was wonderful. He was a lovely guest, but he was also he'd listened to the podcast, which was which was sort of like which is, does not always happen, you know. He was uh, <laughs> and was very very complimentary about it. It was very nice. Um, so I was, uh, I was lovely. Um, when you talk at the very beginning of your book, you have this sort of um, I think it was you know hugely necessary uh, background to how. Um, Nazism and fascism, I mean, we're talking Italian fascism with Mussolini, to some degree Franco uh, from Spain and, and Hitler in Germany, obviously, uh, how they have a, a sympathizers uh, that are based in America, how, how America is not this, it could not possibly happen here, the sort of Sinclair Lewis uh, uh, title of the novel, um, how, how it was very, very possible that it could happen there. Yeah. So the, the lead up to this book, I mean, this is where I, I was trying to throw around the idea of, is there a book here or not? Is this just a couple of, mm. you know, articles or is this a whole book? And and luckily one of my mentors, uh, Tom Doherty said, this is a hundred percent a book and you need to write it. Um, so then I felt pressured to do so. Um, but I, we had been, the reason I asked him though, is because there in over the last decade, there's been a bunch of books, um, some good, some not so good about, the relationship between Hollywood and fascism and some of the big ones, of course, Tom's book, Hollywood and Hitler, 1933 to 39 was a great book just about, you know, the rise of the anti-Nazi league and, and the popular front and all this kind of stuff in Hollywood, you know, how they, you know, they, uh, you know, had um, Mussolini's kid, uh, you know, partying in Hollywood. And then by the time uh, Lenny Reifenstahl came, they ran her out of town. I mean, there, there's all kinds of interesting history here. And then, uh, a few years after that book, I think that was in 2013, um, Stephen Ross and Laura Rosenzweig both wrote books about the rise of uh, anti-Nazi espionage in Los Angeles. And uh, those were also really eye-opening to me because they, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, they really connect Hollywood to this larger historical moment. And that's when I really started to see connections to the lead up to this investigation, because that was the big thing. You know, you've got this investigation that embarrassed the senators that kind of came and went. But it 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 was kind of the pinnacle of this rising fascist sympathy 
throughout the 1930s that kind of got lost by history because it happened mere months before Pearl Harbor. And understandably, you know, it was now in the shadow of World War II. So it was uh, kind of forgotten. But, uh, you know, I got increasingly interested in what was going on in the 30s in Hollywood and this this push and pull with fascism. And I started to see the Senate investigation in 41 is like the pinnacle of that kind of the, it, it peaked. And then kind of like in what I was reading in the, in the Hoover book, how McCarthy kind of McCarthyism peaked with the army McCarthy hearings. And then he was embarrassed on the national stage and it kind of, you know, kind of the cold war started to dwindle uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so I started to actually, I wish I read that book before this, that would have been a better parallel <laughs> for the conclusion. Um, but Similarly, I saw the 41 investigation as kind of the peak of that, that fascist sympathy. And then the, this kind of blew up in their faces and it started to, and of course, in World War II, and we took on fascism, um, including Hollywood took on fascism. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and there's this, uh, the, what I love about the book, though, is, is spoiler alert, Pearl Harbor happens, <laughs> but... <laughs> But as you're reading the book, as you're going through the he- hearings and you break them down on a sort of day-by-day basis, um, I completely lost sight of that. And I was just thinking, God, how is this going to turn out? And I'm I, honestly, I am not. Um, hope I'm not blowing smoke anywhere up your posterior, but um, it's um, this is a Netflix show. This is a drama. There's, the, the, I can see this because that e- even that sort of denouement is is such a brilliant sort of left field. Oh shit, that's what happened the day after, you know. Right. Well, and that, and that's that, that was one of the reasons I decided to do the book was that th- this, you know, I wasn't the first person to write about the investigation, mm. um, but everywhere else it's just kind of synthesized and it's, you know, you get a little bit of overview, uh, you know, a couple of the, you know, big lines and then it's kind of gone. But when I was reading through the congressional record, I, it did, it felt like a Netflix series. It really did. You know, it felt like a, you know, a, you know, some kind of legal procedural. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was riveted reading this and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta share what the day to day was like on this because it was amazing because they were, you know, the Hollywood couldn't, you know, it, it was completely, you know, the, the, the deck was purposely stacked against Hollywood to embarrass them. And it completely backfired. And, uh, you know, it was it was wild because they, the, you know, Hollywood brought in Wendell Wilkie, who was this very popular politician who ran for president or ran, you know, didn't didn't win, um, but w- was kind of this beloved uh, political figure, politically connected. Uh, he came in as their counsel, but the senators uh, on this investigation committee said that they, they essentially muzzled him. They said you couldn't, you can't cross-examine anybody, that kind of stuff. So what Wilkie did was every day he would just unload in the press. So, it, you know, I was reading the invest, you know, a day of investigation. Then I would, you know, look up, you know, Hollywood Reporter and, and Motion Picture Daily and all this kind of stuff. And I'd be like, oh, shit. Wow. He's he is really laying into them. And this is mm-hmm. and then the journalists started doing that, too. And it, it became funny, um, you know, it, which which was kind of perfect because it's such a frustrating subject um, to have this kind of laughter because I went to the National Archives to dig around in this. And I, I remember when the archivist emailed me, I, I had emailed asking, you know, is there, is there anything on this, you know, surviving documents of this investigation? And they, after a while, they email me back. They're like, we found, you know, we found about a thousand pages, but the bad news is, is it's, it's all, it's all disorganized and out of order. And I said, well, that's fantastic. That means nobody has looked at it yet. Mm. And virgin snow. 
Right, right. And and reading through it, I mean, the, the fan letters in there, um, some of them I put in the book are just depressing. I mean, the amount of people that are writing into the investigation saying, yeah, you're finally going after the Jews in Hollywood. Um, it was it was disheartening for sure, which is why, you know, once you read Wilkie and you read Drew Pearson and these people in the press just pounding the senators, um, it's it's a breath of fresh air. And mm. it's like, OK, so this wasn't just unanimously accepted. Uh, it was, there was definitely some, some, some turning points, you know, that we, by this time, you know, we knew what was going on in Europe. We knew, we knew what was going on in concentration camps. This stuff was all over the national press. So it was, it, it, the, the senators clearly could not read the room. You know, they thought they were going to, you know, that they thought they really thought Gerald and I, who helped really put this together, really thought this was going to be a slam dunk that mm-hmm. we're going to embarrass Hollywood on the national stage. And we're going to ruin the film industry by showing that they're trying to push us into war with these anti-Nazi movies. But uh, the exact opposite happened, uh, which is which is what made this kind of, after a while, as, as frustrating of a story it is, it became really fun to write because it, it, it did not turn out uh, as they had hoped. It's kind of a, a really interesting corrective as well, because I think the idea that we have of Hollywood is, uh, is, is very much colored by the McCarthy uh, hearings and the idea that they they had this one moment where they all flew over there, Bogart flies over with you know all Charlton Heston all as a bunch, and then they completely fold because the Hollywood yeah. Eleven or so, um, you know their their tactics are muddled and well, there's there's a whole industry of books about about that as well, but but here you have a situation in which. Hollywood didn't fold. And yes, there were, you know, who knows what would have happened if it had continued and Pearl Harbor hadn't happened. And, you know, we have seen very bad arguments win uh, regardless of, of how stupid they are. But but in this situation, I came away with like a respect for, for elements of Hollywood. Like, you know, Warner comes over as, you know, in this situation, in this case, um, you know, kind of quite good quite very good indeed oh oh yeah harry warner is just he is an absolute badass mm. and and that, so my warner brothers book that started as a project to i was just gonna do a biography of harry warner because i'm like mm. people need to know more about this guy he is incredible he's the exact opposite of so many of the hollywood moguls that we kind of love but also don't really like how they acted in their personal life like he was the real deal he was a real dude he was a respectable guy uh, and, uh, and it was actually Pat McGilligan who had, who had said, uh, yeah, you need to do all of the brothers because we needed a deep dive. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you bring up the, the, the HUAC stuff in the forties and fifties and, and yeah, Harry, Harry Warner, he, he, he dismantled the senators in this, in this instance, uh, and when the House Committee comes, one of the things I found out from my book is that Harry told me, so it was Jack, it was Harry Warner this time, it was Jack Warner with, with HUAC. Uh, and when the House came uh, after Hollywood, uh, Harry Warner said, don't, don't even give them the time of day, don't waste your time on this. I mean, he, you know, after dismantling the government accusations uh, in 41, he didn't take any of this seriously. And, you know, he was older by then and was like, I'm not, I'm not even going to give this the time of day. Uh, and, and sadly, you know, Jack goes in and he was not nearly as politically savvy as his older brother. So, um, you know, he didn't, didn't really do the studio or the industry any favors as, as we know, like you said, there's an industry of books about this. 
Um, but this is this this is an interesting precursor because Hollywood actually stepped up and defended themselves. And I think they could have done that, you know, reading through all of this, you know, when you know the the blacklist era and you read through what happened in 41, it's it's kind of hard not to think that they could have done a better job defending themselves against HUAC, although um, you know, the 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 communist fear. Uh, was was probably greater, you know, the 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 social, you know, political anxiety was definitely greater. So I don't want to discount that post-war uh, fact. Uh, but it, it's still, you know, when you read 40, the stuff in 41, it's hard to, it, it's easy to start thinking um, strategically of things they could have done differently in 47. Right, right. And definitely not seed the whole idea that any anything that looks like social, dealing with social issues is, is, commie propaganda you know that which right. was the you know which dam damages the film industry as we go forward and the way we tell stories and limits it um so prior to the to to all of this you have a number of films which are produced um of a sort of as you say sort of anti-nazi and this is obviously prior to america's entry into the war um and there's a as you outline as a strong isolationist bent, which is opposed to these. So what were those early films and what were their, what was their impact on the audiences? Yeah. So there's, there's quite a few. And actually John Flynn, who, who testifies in front of you, he, he produces, he's, he's the only one who actually produces a list of, mm -hmm. of offensive, offensive movies or what, what the isolationists thought were offensive. And um, there's it's a lot of, it's, it's mostly Hollywood and, and European films. Um, but some of the big ones, of course, I mean, sticking with Warner Brothers, I mean, Confessions of a Nazi Spy is probably the biggest one because that one really broke the dam in terms of, you know, the, there, there was the production code that didn't allow movies to ridicule other religions and nations. So that was one of the problems uh, that, uh, you know, so, some people have unfairly criticized Hollywood. Why didn't you go after the Nazis sooner? It's like, well, they kind of couldn't. You know, there was this mm. production code that recently got reignited got new teeth through joe breen and they 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 would be in a ration of shit if they started going after other nations uh and but by 1939 things are just so bad right you know following Kristallnacht, and you know you've got so much going on you know invasions left and right that the warner brothers just said screw it we're going after uh the nazis and in their true to form ripping from the headlines you've got the the you know um leon Thoreau exposing the nazi ring um in new york i believe um, so they're just ripping from the headlines. They're not propagandizing anything. They're just making a story like they've always been making stories. Um, so Confession of the Nazi Spy was huge, but there was a whole lot of other ones. I mean, another favorite uh, that, that's gotten a lot of, of play in the last couple of years is uh, The Mortal Storm, uh, MGM's film uh, with Jimmy Stewart, uh, which, is, which is fantastic. Uh, and, and that one almost is probably maybe the best of these because it, it, it feels very current uh, at least in this this country, for sure, because you've got a character who is you know growing up, coming of age, and all of a sudden society is is split uh, between kind of the fascists and the not fascists, and you have uh, the fascist sympathizers starting to see their friends and colleagues and teachers and family members who aren't on board as enemies. And it feels, you know, that kind of, we see the rise of polarization in that movie uh, and it came out in 1940 and it's, it feels like it could have been made yesterday. Um, so I feel like that movie has gotten a lot of uh, 
attention justifiably, but you've also got Fritz, Fritz Lang, Mad Hunt, great movie about the guy who gets caught trying to hunt Hitler. Um, the Man I Married, Four Sons. Uh, what else is in here? It's been a while since I've watched got, some of we've these. We've got the the Chaplin, The Great Dictator, which is um, right. which comes up as well in hearings. It, it comes up, and it and what's fascinating is they keep threatening to subpoena Chaplin. Mm. And I wish they did because he would have been mincemeat of these of these guys. Uh, you know, you know, he, he would have done even better than Harry Warner. Mm. Um, mm. You know, they so they they kept bringing him up, and and what's telling every time they bring him up, or quite often, they keep pointing out to you know if they bring up the Great Dictator, they talk about it as being an awful movie, but then they'll also point out that very directly that Chaplin is uh, he's not from the U.S. right. Um, and you know, you start to see the xenophobia come out, and then in, in at one point they they say, I'm trying to remember who says it, but they basically say, yeah, he's he's not not only is he not from here, but he's been living here for a while and hasn't hasn't pursued, uh, you know, becoming uh, a citizen. So they're 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 always just leveling this kind of suspicion of anybody that they they can, uh, and they do this so often throughout the investigation that one of the one of the great lines in this whole thing is when Daryl Zanuck comes to defend he opens his whole thing by reminding everybody that he's he's actually uh born in the u.s so they don't have to be afraid of him uh because all these other moguls that they brought are all these european-born immigrants uh so when zanuck comes up uh he basically you know it was just one of those reminders that like yeah they 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 know what's really going on in this investigation this really isn't about movies is it um you know it's about you know foreigners pushing us into a war um, so, so Zanuck calls them out pretty directly, and it's pretty awesome. Hey, it's weird with the, the Chaplin piece because everybody keeps saying in the in the testimony that you're quoting, they're sort of saying, "Oh, he, it was a real flop, and he's not, you know." And that's sort of proof that it's propaganda because, first of all, people don't really want it, and and secondly, if it was for profit, you know, if if you were just doing it to make money, then then these films don't. But the Great Dictator. Well, it wasn't a flop at all, was it? I, I, I thought it was quite a, a huge hit for Chaplin. I thought it was like one of his most commercially successful films. I I think so. I don't I don't I don't remember precisely either. Um, but it I mean, yeah, it it definitely got a lot of fanfare, and that, that and that was a criticism with a lot of these movies. Well, actually, they the Hollywood could have defended with with some of this, but they probably didn't want to put this on the national stage. That a lot of these anti-Nazi movies didn't make a ton of money, but they did get really passionate uh, followings, you know, mm. it really did connect with a part of the audience. And, um, you know, this is, you know, the good time to remember, it's not like today where, where a studio puts all of their money into, you know, you know, a few movies a year and they try to make a ton of money where, you know, these studios were making, you know, in the early thirties, I'm trying to remember, I counted one of the years, it was something like 70 or 80 movies from Warner brothers. It was something, it was ridiculous. Mm. I mean, so they're making, they're making a ton of movies. So, they have range to make some movies that may not make money or may not make a lot of money, but they might be important movies. And, and that's what a lot of these were. And, and certainly that's what Chaplin was most interested in too. That's, that's why United artists was, was a thing to begin with. So they could, they could, the artists could have the control to make meaningful movies. Mm. And, but, but you're right. I mean, it, it had been a while since Chaplin had been in anything and, uh, yeah, this movie it was huge. It got a lot of it got a lot of talk. I mean, it got you know the, a lot of Nazi propagandists all felt compelled to respond to it, right? Mm, mm. So uh, it it got attention. It got headlines, and it it did exactly what what Chaplin 
set out for it to do. And it's continuing to do that, right? I mean, you still, every now and again on social media, that final speech will go viral. And people have seen that that final speech of that movie that probably haven't even seen The Great Dictator, right? I mean, so it's still it's still making the rounds. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's one of kind of, I mean, I, it's, it's not my favorite Chaplin by a long street because of not for any political reasons, obviously, but just because I find his voice a little bit, you know, it's just not what I wanted when I went to hear with, with, with Chaplin speaking. But um, but he's, it's amazing. It's got some sections which are great. And I showed it to students like a couple of years ago. I think it was during lockdown. And they, um, I was surprised at how well they responded to it. I mean, they absolutely loved it. It wasn't just a case of like, they were like, oh, respectful of it or anything like that. They just loved it out and out. And this, these aren't film students, I, I hasten to add. These are just uh, language students. So they're just watching, you know, they're watching it as a, as a film, you know. Yeah, well, and, I, and I've shown clips of it too. So my most of my students too in my film and popular culture classes, they're, they're first and second year students. So they're not film majors either. So it's more mm. of a general audience. And I've shown, I haven't shown the entire film. I probably should, but I just show clips. And anytime I do it, I mean, they're laughing at it like it's a brand new movie. I mean, I get the same, I get the same response when I do Sherlock Jr. in that class, uh, which is kind of fun. But I, I usually show them the clip where, where Chaplin is doing like the German gibberish in his speech, you know, and, and it's like, you know, cause they've all seen, you know, in classes and documentaries and the newsreel footage of Hitler. Right. So I just cut right to him doing his, you know, like sauerkraut and it's, and they, they laugh like it's like, it's, you know, a, a brand new comedy and it's like, yeah. it's still, he is still funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's shouting about the Juden and the, and the microphone yep. is wilting in front of him with the force <laughs> of his head, you know, and, and even things right. like Mussolini's adenoidal hinkle. Yep. <laughs> so, all not, of that pouring the water down his pants. Like it, it's all, it's gold. It's still, uh, it's still gold. It's so silly and so serious at exactly the same time. It's so, it's crazy. Um, and of course, I mean, you had the, even before that, I think the Three Stooges did a did a Nazi-based yes. short, um, which I watched. I'm not a huge fan of the Three Stooges, but I watched that and I thought it was really good. It was really stands up. Yeah, yeah, there was, uh, yeah, there there were certainly some, some uh, anti-fascist stuff going on. I mean, yeah, the Three Stooges, there was also a small movie called I Was a Captive of Nazi Germany, um, but there wasn't really anything, you know, like a major studio putting out a movie, you know, like Edward G. Robinson was in Confession of the Nazi Spy, right? And you have Jimmy Stewart and, and Gene Arthur in, in Mortal Storm. So you've got bona fide stars and star mm. power behind this kind of stuff by the end of the decade. Um, but a lot, you know, a lot of the movies, and I talk about this in the book too, I mean, a lot of the movies, th there was a good amount of stuff. When you look at the 30s closely, there was a lot of allegorical anti-fascist stuff coming out. Um, a lot of it from Warner Brothers, uh, you know, they won't forget and Black Legion and stuff like this, uh, where they're not saying Nazi and fascist, but they're when when you watch it closely, it's pretty clear what was going on, and it would have been pretty clear for audiences of the day. So it really wasn't all that much of a surprise by the end of the decade when when they started going, you know, kind of taking the gloves off and going uh, against the Nazis. Um, because, yeah, I try to contextualize a lot of this in the book, too. There was a lot. There was so much going on. Not only, you know, do I incorporate some of the research from those books about the, the anti-Nazi espionage in Los Angeles, but you have, right, you know, kind of the rise of the KKK and the Black Legion. You have the uh, you have Father Charles Coughlin on the radio. Uh, you've got a lot of you, you've got um, uh, Charles Lindbergh uh, in his, his growing uh, fascist sympathies and 
you know, all of this stuff is, is just building. Um, so that's, you know, I, I, I try to take all of that into account, you know, cause that's another way that I, I show how, it's another way to justify why, you know, why a book about this 41 investigation that kind of fizzled while it, you know, it represents not just this short uh, kind of failed inquiry, but it represents kind of the, the fizzling of this, this fascist sympathy that was peaking at the end of the decade. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's very, that, that in some ways was one of the most um, powerful moments in the book was, it was, was that introductory chap, those introductory chapters where you're, where you're making this point that, look, the, the, the thing that we're living with today has kind of always been there. And, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not even sure, I mean, it fizzled on the national stage, but I'm not, not sure it ever goes away. It's just sometimes it, no. it it allows itself to speak out loud and other times it, it, it couches uh, it's couches its arguments in somewhat more coded language and dog whistle racism and anti-Semitism as you, uh, as, as you refer to black Legion, by the way, Humphrey Bogart. I think that that's a, a film ripe for rediscovery because it's, uh, it's, oh, one, yes. it's, it's one of his best sort of pre Casablanca movies. Yeah, I, and I think that's one of his most powerful movies. I mean, mm. it is just that movie packs a punch like you just can't. You, it's it's hard to describe. It's so good. It's almost hard to describe. I mean, it, it it tracks with so much. I mean, yeah, you've got this. I mean, for for people who have not seen it, I mean, you have this this worker, this factory worker who is he gets this. He, he's up for a promotion and he doesn't get it, and he starts he's looking for answers and he starts listening to this radio preacher, which is very much like Charles Coughlin who starts going on about um, his bigotry and his xenophobia and all this kind of stuff. And they start, he starts to make accusations about this guy that he knows that got the, the promotion because of his big nose. Right. So therefore he was Jewish, right. They're playing on the stereotype. And then, and then he joins the black Legion, which is this KKK like group that was in reality growing in the Midwest uh, and, you know, we see this trajectory of this, this person who is radicalized, um, you know, found answers for the frustrations of their life in, in this uh, nas- growing national racism and prejudice. Uh, and it's, it is, yeah, it is a powerful movie. I mean, and, and the reviews at the time were just, were, it's like everyone knew that this movie, like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that movie didn't make him an A-list star. We, we had to wait till Maltese Falcon and and Casablanca, because this this movie just was really, really incredible. Mm. And I think it's so powerful because Bogart's always great when he's playing a, a character who, I mean, he has it in his locker. Yes, we love the Dashiell Hammett character in uh, Maltese Falcon. We yeah. love Rick from Casablanca, but we also he's also great as in the Treasure of Sierra Madre and in uh, you know, um, in a lonely place. These really kind of morally yeah. morally ambivalent characters let's say if not if not out and out you know weak men who are who are susceptible to failure um and this this i would add to that pantheon of of you know brilliant american failures for sure for sure yeah it's yeah he's he's definitely at his best on many levels but one of them is very much when we have a character that is like you said ambivalent or conflicted and then that the kind of conflict manifests in something awful right and um, yeah, so if anyone who has not seen Black Legion, you need to check it out because you will not be, <laughs> definitely not be uh, sad you did. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, you've got these hugely popular people. I mean, but as you as we say, 
at this point, Bogart hasn't quite broken up, but Edward G. Robinson, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Charlie Chaplin. I mean, I always think that when people are going head. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Head with Charlie Chaplin, it's kind of like, why are you bothering? This guy's a massive superstar. I mean, the people love him. You know, it, it's, it just seems like you're on a hiding to nothing. Um yeah, it's like when I don't know nowadays when somebody sort of starts criticizing Taylor Swift or you, do you know how many people you're just going <laughs> to piss piss off with with that? You yeah, know, don't even open that can of worms. <laughs> exactly, she's great. Not worth it. She's great. Let's just say she's great and leave it at that. Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, the, the, I don't know if if the, there's this sort of populism which is very anti Hollywood. It, uh, sort of from the get-go, right? There's this sort of like, you know, these guys don't live, uh, they live on the, the West Coast, they're, they're nothing, they're mostly foreigners, they're nothing to do with with true American values. Um, and, and, and the war, I, I mean, to begin with, that, how, how can that be true when so much of the product that Hollywood is making is, is, is being watched two or three or four times a week by everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, yeah, there, there, what you were getting at, what we're getting at here is really good because it, there's this strange undercurrent of like Hollywood movies are so popular, right? And, you know, you've got all these, you know, a range of socialists or socialists. <laughs> I, really. I haven't finished my coffee yet. Uh, a range of um, sociologists you know, I've guessed, you know, anywhere from like 50 to 85 million a week, right? We're going to movies. So it's, it's, um, but that's also one of the reasons why these senators saw it as a threat. Um, and so like the second day, um, uh, the, God, I'm trying to remember who it was now again, earlier, I think it was Wheeler or I was, uh, I was Clark. Yeah. Uh, Chip right. Clark, Bennett, Chip Clark. Uh, he testifies and he makes it very clear uh, that one of his issues with Hollywood isn't necessarily the anti-Nazi movies. His issue is that they are getting the headlines, they are getting on the newsreels, and they're not elected figures. 
And the elected figures like himself deserve this kind of platform and Hollywood does not deserve the, the platform and influence that they have. And that, that, that's clearly his big issue. Um, so there's, there's a lot of sour grapes going on with him. And, you know, it's, it's weird when I started writing this book was, was and considering it was right around, um, I guess, was it 2017, 16 or 17? So we already had in the US here, we already had, uh, you know, the America First movement and all this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm reading about the America First movement in the 30s. And I'm like, do, do y'all not know history? <laughs> like, have you not looked back <laughs> what this meant then? Because any time, you know, somebody, you know, in the last few years been like, well, you know, the America First movement is is racist. They'll be like, wow, how can you say that? You know, we're a pro-America. And it's like, well, there's actually a really long history of, and there's, while I was, one of the things I was, I was, I was keeping close to me while I was looking at the, the lead up to this investigation was a book um, uh, by Sarah Churchwell called, uh, I believe the title is Behold America, but it's kind of, it's, it's a history of America firsting. Mm. And it's it's fantastic because she she tracks it basically from from like the 1920s to Donald Trump. And uh, that was one thing I didn't really want to do in my book. I'm like, you know, if I start in the conclusion, start saying like, oh, Trump is doing this now, then it's going to timestamp this thing um, because it's it's not just that, you know, the, you know, it was it was easy to to make those parallels when I was writing. Um, but this is something that isn't isn't necessarily just a, you know, a Trump thing or a, it's it's something that 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 comes up on and off throughout history. You know, like, like you said, these things kind of come up, they never really go away. Right. They kind of, they, they, they come, if all goes well, if they come to the the surface, they get their ass kicked and they go back down. And that's what happened in this case. Um, and we're kind of in, in the, in the middle of this maybe happening again <laughs> in the U S yeah. uh, but you know, this, this, this happens on and off throughout history. So there's a lot of, you know, I, I kind of look at this book more as uh, a, kind of a, a, an overview of things that have happened, but also kind of a, a warning, kind of a playbook of, of what to keep in mind when these things start happening, because generally uh, what happens is, is they, you know, these movements can't, you know, the true colors come out eventually, they cannot withstand the criticism, people realize what's really going on, and it, it, it starts to go away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's me trying to be a little bit more of an optimist with this, uh, instead of going right to the, the fear mongering is that, you know, and that's what I kind of conclude the book is that anytime this, this happens, especially when there's, there's pushback against popular culture, eventually the ignorance becomes clear. And, you know, in the beginning of this investigation, you know, Gerald Nye, who put this all, who helped put this all together, um, you know, America Firster himself, uh, hadn't even watched any of the movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> first day. What a twist! I could just, I again, I could see the Netflix series right there. That being like exactly. one of those moments where people go, "What?" And then one of the senators is actually saying, "Why don't we just watch some of the films? Do you know, let me have a break, watch some of the movies." Well, yeah, it was Senator McFarland, the Ernest yeah. McFarland. They brought in as a junior senator. Thought, oh, this 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 kid lawyer from Arizona, he'll just you know he'll follow follow all of us veterans. And no, he's just a good lawyer. So he's going to be like, let me just fill me in here. I'm not a movie guy. He asks honest questions. And he he basically ruined the investigation on the first day. Um, yeah. And he's sort of saying, well, so what, how would this, how would censorship work then? How would we do it? If you, you know, if, if you know, let's just assume for a second that there is this 
propaganda that we don't want to have out there. How how would you legislate for it? You know, uh, without contradicting the First Amendment, and it's uh, it just baffles everybody uh, in the committee. Right. It doesn't matter that they muzzled Wilkie because they had even in, uh, Drew Pearson and the Hollywood reporters even saying that, you know, uh, McFarland has become the best ally Hollywood could ask for uh, because he asked the, the real questions and they're just real honest questions. He's not necessarily defending Hollywood. He just he just he you know right in the beginning, he just said, like, I don't watch a lot of movies. Can you just fill me in? And what what are the problems with these movies? And he and, and I can't answer it. Mm. And uh <laughs> And throughout the whole investigation, he's like, why don't we stop and watch the movies first and see if there's any problem with these? And near the end of the investigation, McFarland gets so, so frustrated. He just walks off and he's yeah. like, I'm done. You guys are stupid. This is a dumb, this is a waste of time. Um, so he leaves, which is kind of, again, that'd be another great movement yeah. moment yeah. on TV series. You know, this, this big character just you know, walks off the set. Um walks out of the courtroom, storms out because they're just, and then this is where, again, it, it, you know, we keep talking about how Harry Warner, you know, so the first day Nye says, you know, he, it's, it's shown that he has not seen any of these movies. And then Harry Warner brings to uh, the stage, a letter from Gerald Nye from 1939, talking about how amazed he was to see confessions of a Nazi spy and it made him proud to be an American. And we need more movies like this. And, uh, you know, that, and that's where it was great to read the press because they're all talking about how red Nye's face became yes. uh, just embarrassed. Uh, and, and it really felt, you know, if it wasn't done, then it was definitely done. Yeah. Uh, he nailed it off and shut that, even though they had a couple more days of kind of really sad, embarrassing proceedings after that. But it was pretty much done as soon as Harry Warner read that letter. And you also have uh, one of the things that's interesting, and I think that's where HUAC comes in as a sort of as a, as what is essentially sort of like a, a continuation of these hearings to some degree, um, but with a with a boot very much on the other foot in terms of the 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 strength of the of the uh, not just the strength of the case, but but the strength of feeling and, and what have you, is that there are figures within Hollywood who are who are like gossip columnists or um, there's a radio critic that you quote extensively who who, who is, is testifying. And there, there's a real sense of like, here's an opportunity for... Well, I mean, I always think of Ronald Reagan as being slightly in this category as someone who's not really good enough to make it in Hollywood but is mm. prominent enough, so he'll he'll use his platform uh, to to sort of forward his political ideas in a way that they're criticizing the left for doing. But he'll do it in a much more sort of like a, a way which is much friendlier to the establishment. For sure, for sure. And then yeah, you're, you're talking about Jimmy Fiddler, who uh, yeah, he testified, and yeah, he he was really good at me. And, and this is where Senator McFarland again, he just made it clear that Fiddler was just good at making himself the story, right? Uh, and you know, he he wanted he pushed himself to to get in, you know invited to this this party uh, because he knew uh, it, he would be in the headlines, even though you know anybody today most you know. I didn't really know much about Jimmy Fiddler. Actually, I can't even remember if I'd even heard of him until I started researching this. So he's, yeah, he he was very much on an attention, uh, a journey for attention, um, just like another another radio personality that there isn't much on. I mean, I found some stuff 
Um, but there, there's probably still more work to be done on G. Allison Phelps, who was a uh, on the radio in Los Angeles and was from from all accounts seems like an absolutely batshit crazy guy. Um, you know, putting you know writing these anti Jewish pamphlets and spreading them all over Los Angeles and stuff. And, you know, I've, I've come across these pamphlets in a couple of different archives. Um, and yeah, I'm surprised they didn't bring him in either, but uh, they definitely had a lot of his writing as, as uh, uh, ammunition, I suppose, uh, for this. And, and you, you bring up kind of comparing the HUAC to this. I mean, that this is, I mean, of course the difference is you, one is the house committee, one's a Senate committee, but one, mm. the reason this one got justified is because they ran this through, which is actually a kind of smart way to get it justified. Uh, they ran it through the interstate commerce committee. So they were, they were able to investigate an industry uh, in how it was making money. And uh, whereas, you know, so th there was a, a lot less room to justify the prejudice, even though they tried to get it in there, whereas the House on american Activities Committee seemed to be just born of that, right? It was mm -hmm. just, it was clearly just a, a witch hunt to, to, to smoke out uh, any, you know, left of center sympathies, you know, and brand anything as communist that you don't want around. Um, and, and maybe part of it is they, they, they learned from the embarrassment of the Senate investigation and they realized, you know, we got to, we got to get on the fear tactics a little harder, a little sooner. Uh, otherwise, uh, they're going to have to answer tough questions that they can't answer. <laughs> right. Right. Um, which is why this one fizzled. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have their, you know, sort of prepare the ground much better. And of course, you know, history, the context is different. The, the, as, as you mentioned earlier, there's, um, you know, your your the wind at your back is 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 different here to to what it was um, come the Cold War and the post war sort of situation with, which Hewak faced. Um, when you were uh, when you were working on this, what was, were there any sort of uh, moments where you were sort of genuinely surprised? Was it what was your sort of discovery that you thought, "Wow, this is this is something that I did." I've never heard before. Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, a lot of the testimony was just was mm -hmm. just wild. Um, I mean, a lot of the things that that come to my mind uh, were, well, I mean, one of the things I mentioned before, which is the in in um, in the 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 boxes, the archives for this at the National Archives, um, all the fan letters for these senators um, right. were just right. wild. I mean, so anybody who might question, you know, if there was any question of how how prominent anti-Semitism was in the 30s, uh, there was no question after that. And it, you know, it, it was it was one of these deals where it's like I I was writing this book for a lot of reasons. I was passionate about it. It was fascinating history, all this kind of stuff. And then I got to a point where I started reading these letters, and then I'm like, okay, I'm writing these letters because fuck these people. <laughs> you know, it was. Like, <laughs> It, it was, I mean, one of them, I mean, they were, I mean, one letter after the other saying, you know, you're finally going after the Jews and, and thank you for a question, you know, for, for tackling the Jewish question. One, one woman actually wrote a letter and she included in it a, what is called, and I knew nothing about this until I, 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 I found this, but it's called the, um, apparently there's the Franklin prophecy. So there's this, it's, it's this fake speech that Benjamin Franklin supposedly gave at the mm. constitutional Congress where he was arguing to 
write the Jews out of the Constitution. So she had, she had written to the senators and said, you know, you're finally making good on what Benjamin Franklin was was arguing for and all this kind of stuff. And I'm reading through this and I'm like, what did I miss in history class? I'm like, is there is there's this whole part of Franklin that I don't know? And I was almost kind of like embarrassed. And I started looking around and I found out that this this is a, a falsified piece of history that started uh, with the silver shirts, actually, uh, it, which was one of these Los Angeles uh, pro-Nazi groups. And they were they they raided the the leader of this group. Um, they raided his his stuff and they found this there. Um, and so he had been using it to to propagandize against the Jews. And apparently it's still used today, like in the Middle East and stuff. Apparently it's still floating around. Oh, my God. Um, so I yeah, I that that was a big like, wow, what what the hell did I miss moment? That, that uh, just shows sure. you how pernicious this sort of shit is, because it, yep. it's like, who are these elders of Zion I keep hearing about? Where, where right. are they from? You know, it's like, oh, wait, okay, okay, I'm okay. I mean, I was watching, I looked at something today, uh, and it was like a, a picture of the British Houses of Parliament, and in one photograph, the, the, the Houses of Parliament are completely empty, there's just one person debating on the floor. And then in the other one, it's absolutely jam-packed, and it says you know, debating vaccine safety on the left, on the right, debating pay rise for the MPs. And and you sort of go, ah, you see? And of course, it's just faked. I mean, I mean, those are two photographs. And if you if you sort of do a Google image search, you'll find those photographs with totally different random sort of subtitles mm -hmm. all the way through, some of which I would agree with, you know, oh, debating the state of the NHS on the left, debating pay rise on the right, or, you know, and some of which I won't. But it's just that absolute, um, uh, you know. I mean, it's got worse with the internet, but but it, it's always been there. And and I mean, one of the things that I thought as well to just go to, to stop myself from digressing too much because I can feel I can feel it coming on. Um, <laughs> There's a lot it, to digress through in this book, for sure. Absolutely, isn't it? It it's. It, I mean, it, it's a testament to, because, to how because you're right. The Franklin prophecy is is a hundred percent of you know a 1930s version of some viral misinformation. Yeah, absolutely. Right, exactly. What it is. Exactly. It's, it's Obama's birth certificate or it's the, you know, the, the some some doctor somewhere did a study about something during COVID, which, you know, you could weirdly find it difficult to actually source who this doctor was. Right. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, comes up again and again and again is is how these films that they're making, Confessions of a Nazi Spy and um are ripped from the headlines. You used the phrase earlier, and they're based on articles or books or true accounts. Uh, and one of the defenses of, of Hollywood is, okay, well, if this is so pernicious, if this is so terrible and so propagandistic, why didn't you go after the publishers? Why do you only go after the film version? And so in that sense, it also seems to be uh, a for shadowing of the, of the fact that it's always Hollywood which is going to get hammered here you know you can write Chomsky can write books and have books published all uh, you know as 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 long as the day is long you know as and nobody mm -hmm. will will say anything but you put it on screen and you're talking to everybody it's it's more democratic it's more dangerous in that sense 
I mean, it's, sorry, oh, it's perceived as more dangerous. I don't want to say it's more dangerous, but it's perceived as more dangerous. For sure. And, and you know, it's it's interesting because, they because yeah, they they bring up, uh, you know, it is brought up that, you know, why didn't you go after the journalists? And, you know, that that's kind of an easy defense because why they didn't just because, and then this comes out of, you know, all of the, the controversy of, of Birth of a Nation in 1915 is that, you know, it was, it was found that, that, you know, Hollywood did not, does not have free speech protections like journalists do. So the journalists just get a pass on this. The, the big one was the publishers, right? So it's like, if you, if you go, you, if you're going after the mortal storm, why don't you go after the woman who wrote the book? And, you know, because in, in the, the simple answer is probably because you're not going to get the headlines, right? Like they're, mm. the, the influence isn't there. And uh, they, they probably should have question, you know, question that a little bit more, but it, it is very clear why they go after Hollywood. It's very, it's very similar reason why HUAC went after Hollywood is because you're going to get, you're going to get the attention. You're going to get um, your arguments and your, your headlines on the, you know, on the national stage, national press, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, of course, in this case, it did not, it did not help them at all. Um, but but the, the the PR machine worked as it was supposed to, right? They did get the headlines. It was covered in the national press. It was covered in the trades, but it was also covered, you know, on the East Coast. I mean, it was covered in the Washington Post, New York Times. It was covered, you know, Chicago papers ca- carried it, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was everywhere. Absolutely. And, and the final sort of... Um point of relevance that I want to bring up. And I totally understand your your sort of um reluctance to 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 date the book too much by tying it too closely to contemporary resonance. But the 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 story about the, the element that is very strong of anti-Semitism, which you've also said in terms of the uh of the fan letters to the senators, um that has come back in a way which which has been sort of both shocking and surprising. I mean, I, I, I I'm, yeah, I just, I'm frankly baffled by it. I, I, I it's just one of those, um, uh, you know, I would hope I am free of prejudice in, in a lot of different ways. I, I would very much hope, but anti-Semitism is just one of those ones which seem to be so, uh, maybe I was being way too complacent. It's just like, well, surely, you know, after the Holocaust, you know, surely right. that, that we're cured, aren't we? Can't, can't we? And it, it's just like, oh no, no, we're not. And and we've got Kanye West, and we've got um, uh, and we and we've got way way too much. For sure, and and that's something. While reading this, or while writing this as well, I I went through a similar kind of series of of self reflection where I I was like I I. Yeah, this is way worse. You know, it was, it was two frustrations. One, I was, you know, embarrassed that I didn't realize it was as bad as it was. So it's right. like that was another motivation to write the book because it's like this, these stories need to be told. They need to be out there um, for people to understand that this this can get this bad. But then also that, um, it, yeah, the parallels to, you know, while I was writing this, it was like every every few months, the Anti-Defamation League would, you know, there'd be something come up. We're like, yeah, it's starting to look like the 1930s again. And I, you know, I, you know, while going through what I did for this book, it's like, well, we cannot get to back to the 1930s again. Wow. Mm. Um, but right, you know, in, in this country, we got the shootings at synagogues and all the stuff that's going on. And it's just, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's so deep seated. And it, it seems, it seems very, it's like, you know, how do you how do you fight something that is just this pervasive and this widespread and this just 
the seemingly either widely accepted or too many people being complacent about it. And I think that's why I want to keep writing about it because, uh, you know, you know, this story, but that's also why I was still motivated to do the Warner brothers because so much of their personal story is battling this kind of stuff. And so much of the stuff that they had to battle, uh, people are still battling today. Mm. And it's, it's just, it's not talked about as much. I mean, here we have, you know, on college campuses in in this country, there's so much talk about diversity and prejudice and anti-racism and all this kind of stuff, but the Jews are often left out of these conversations. Mm. And um, while anti-Semitism is running rampant, that that's never really a, a key question of this. And, you know, at our university, I'm friends with um, some people in the, in the, in the Jewish studies program. And I remember, you know, we, we had to do a, uh, like, a like a, 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 a self-paced module on, on racism, all, all faculty did. And I, I emailed them. I'm like, did I do two hours of that? And was there not one mention of anti-Semitism? And they're like, yeah, I, I think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just mm-hmm. like, this is where you start in this. Now it's systemic, right? Like it's, it's, it's just, it's that same kind of complacency. It, I don't necessarily think my, my superiors uh, uh, down at the at, at the at the at the main campus are necessarily anti-Semitic, but I think there's there is this kind of acceptance that maybe you know right after the Holocaust, right? Like it, it, this is not maybe it's not a thing anymore. But right, you you start asking uh, our friends in Jewish communities, and they'll they'll tell you very quickly that it's it's not only is it bad, but it never really got better either. Right. Right. Again, it's like that that thing of it sort of people become a little bit more polite, but they're not less those attitudes are still sort of simmering away in uh, right. And um, this is where a movie like Gentleman's Agreement is still so powerful, right? With Gregory Peck, where it's like mm. the, you know, we haven't really moved on from that. Like, so you watch that movie, it's like that stuff is still happening today. And and we have kind of I mean, there's been a lot of stuff with the with the uh Motion Picture Academy Museum, right? They open up and now, you know, a lot of the biggest donors go to the opening gala and they're like, where are the Jews? Mm. (laughs) Like Mm. they're excluded again, just like when they came to town and they had to create their own club to hang out at because all the rest of them were restricted. Mm. Um, It's, it's, yeah. And, you know, so a lot of this stuff, you know, on on just a a wider scope was just eye-opening to me that, you know, the more I, I looked at what was going on with this investigation, you know, the, the same things were popping up seemingly everywhere around me. Mm, absolutely. And, oh, but don't worry, Dave Chappelle's on the case. We'll be, uh, right. we'll be fine if uh, his searing, <laughs> his searing edgelord commentary can, uh, can save the day. I, uh, it, it's just so depressing because it's such, um, it feels like intersectionality should, should be a way forward with all of this. It's, it's not a comp- competition of uh of 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 different grievances it's it's something that we should we can chew and and walk and at the same time you know uh but it does seem it does seem to be i don't know the internet or i I haven't got a clue tell you the truth so i should stop stop pontificating but it, it it's it what is important is that we have these books and we have this history although i do wanna i do wanna i'm gonna nitpick you a little bit here so, so get <laughs> get ready fine. get ready to That's defend fine. get ready to defend yourself <laughs> In your afterward or uh, your final chapter, anyway, you mention uh, you're talk sort of talking about exactly what we're talking about now. Actually, the importance of history, the importance of an understanding of history, and you refer to a um, a study uh, which says something about um, uh, 
two thirds of college students think that socialism is a viable sort of political option. Uh, and then you add sort of like without, you know, without any knowledge of the murderous history of socialism. Okay. Um, I, I'm paraphrasing you, but I think that's that's roughly it. But my, and my nitpicky yeah. point is the word socialism there. If you say communism, then there's a very good argument for that. You know, there's gulags, there's Khmer Rouge, there's there's a lot. But socialism is, I mean, that's George Orwell, that's the British Labour Party, that's the Scandinavian democracies, that's President Mitterrand. You know, I mean, they're. I, I, you know, I mean, they they have probably got blood on their hands in a sort of a colonial fashion, just the same as like liberalism or any European power for that matter. But but you know, I I just think that's a, a um, I just yeah, I, that, that's just the the socialism rather than communism there. I, sort of. No, you're you're not you're not wrong. You're not wrong. No, I I, I agree with that. And I I'm I, my guess is that study was what's well, so one of the things that happens here a lot is that communism and socialism get conflated. That those, right. those words get used interchangeably. Uh, and you know what I'm what I'm guessing. You know, my intention here is just more. And when when this is talked about here, and this is something that I'll probably do a second edition of this before too long, and I'll probably expand the conclusions. I'll expand on some of this stuff as right. well as probably to do a preface about the, the all the anti defamation league numbers. But um, the the way these conversations, the way I have seen them, usually come up. The reason socialism is used is because it's seen as you're right like you the the murderous history is is communism right um is but the the talk of socialism is seen as like the conduit to communism and the murderous history so that's that's kind of where where it is or at least what i what i meant with what what those studies are trying to to say even though you're right there there's a difference here it's just you know it's a kind of leftward thinking that one goes too far it gets to that ugly history um, but that probably should be elaborated and explained more yeah. effectively. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I don't want to. It it literally is like one word that I'm <laughs> in the whole book that I've. Uh, so I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, but I'm just thinking, like, you know, the Mensheviks were murdered by the Bolsheviks. It wasn't like the Mensheviks necessarily opened. The, I mean, you could argue they opened the door for the Bolsheviks, but they were kind of murdered by them. <laughs> so it, it's it's. Um, uh, I don't think it's the Mensheviks' fault that that, that happened. Um, right. No, you know. I completely agree. There could be an, an, an additional sentence clarifying that trajectory, but that's usually sure. that that's where my mind was. Anyway, right. that's where these conversations happen here, and that that's kind of the trajectory. So I was just kind of assuming that um, that every, everybody knows that, which I probably shouldn't assume. So <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it, that this is the thing. Uh, I think that's what I'm, I, uh, the reason I reacted to that was just simply cause I'm so, I, I really like this book. I'm really, I found it such a fascinating read. It was, it was really new to me, this whole story. Um, uh, and as I, as I said, right at the top, it, it just reads like a thriller. It has, and it's got so many great moments, so many great beats. So we've got Brian Cranston is going to play the, the lawyer who goes outside and does the, uh, have you even, have you sort of written a treatment and sent this off? I haven't, and I probably should because I, you know, multiple people have mentioned this Well, and it's actually this, the book was used, um, Anthony Mara just wrote a book called Mercury Pictures Presents, um, 
and which is kind of a, a fictional history. And he he had read my book, and I since got to know him through this. But he he uh, wrote a, a book about uh, a studio head um, at a different di difficult part of his life and in history. And the the background of this book is the Senate investigation. So he right. used so and actually cited it cited his sources, which is why I found out. So it, it yeah. So it's it's a fantastic book that kind of plays with this. It shows how this could work in in a in a kind of a fun narrative sense yeah but, no yeah, i i think should. you should definitely get your agent onto onto that and <laughs> and uh or, or patrick patrick will know someone he'll uh i'm he'll... sure he does i'm sure he does <laughs> oh george get george to do it george. there you go i'm sure he could pull some strings oh yeah he knows that he, he clearly knows and has known everybody Absolutely, absolutely. I've absolutely adored speaking with him. Um, listen, there's one last thing, Chris, that uh, we have to do, which is, um, and, and this is going to be the last episode before Christmas. So um, you, never has the recommended book had such weight. So I want you to recommend a book for our readers, uh, for our listeners, sorry, and, and readers, obviously, because if you're listening to a podcast called Writers on Film, you, you must be readers. Um so what book would you recommend to our listeners, uh, a book on film? A oh, book on film. Well, I was going to say, I've already kind of sung the praises of that J. Edgar Hoover book, which you know, has a lot of, lot of parallels um, to, to this, this, kind, you know, this kind of history. So, um, but just oh, just tell, tell us the name of the author again of that book as well. So, oh, just, uh, so if anybody's Beverly, interested. Beverly Gage. Beverly Gage. Beverly Gage is her name, and it's, right. it's called... Um, oh man no i'm just blanking but it's yeah it's it's hoover um but yeah it basically tracks him throughout the entire uh century which is fantastic wow um you know as far as you know one, one book that i will recommend that was really really cool and really kind of subverted my expectations in a lot of ways it's called inventing the it girl uh by hillary hallett um I believe that's how to pronounce her last name. If I got it wrong, I'm terribly sorry. But the the subtitle is I'm just looking looking it up here so I get it right. Um, how Eleanor Glynn created the modern romance and conquered early Hollywood. It's it's a fascinating book about how much of the 1800s uh, and a lot of European culture was brought to Hollywood and infused in ways you might not have known. Um, these families, I mean, it's it's just an incredible history um, that tracks this woman's life. Um, and, and towards the end of her life, she was a, a kind of a really big influence in Hollywood and teaching stars, star, uh, you know, female stars, how to how to be the it girl, how to how to bring this kind of reserved yet at the same time overt sexiness to the screen. Um, so it kind of recontextualized a lot of silent cinema in ways that I did not expect. And I, I found it really, really, really cool. Excellent. That's that's brilliant. So inventing the it girl by uh harriet uh hillary. oh sorry hillary hillary hallett hillary yes. hallett okay brilliant and beverly gage's book was called g-man j edgar hoover oh, G -Man, that's right. and the making of the american century god damn it i'm gonna have to buy both of those books aren't i now and I did. I recently. I'm just actually just looking at my Twitter feed here. I just I had took put up put up a couple pictures of books that I had read this year that I thought were really cool. Um, so I was going through there to pick one. Um, but if anybody wants 
to look uh, handle at Chris Yogurst. Um, there's stacks of books there that are were all really good that I read this year. Yeah, there were, a lot of them were have featured on the podcast as well. I, was I saw very, that. I was very yeah. pleased to 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 see Sam was on with Hollywood yeah, and on there. History. That was a fun one. Um, Dana Stevens with the Buster Keaton, I think, yeah. uh, cameraman. Book was fantastic. This has been a bumper year of great film books, actually. I mean, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just noticing them more because we're doing the podcast, and so it's more. Uh, you know, I keep I'm reading much more of these film books than I used to. But um, well, there's it's been not some just really you. I good felt ones. the same. I felt the same way. I, I feel like I've watched less movies this year just because there's so much I want to read. There's just mm, so mm. much good stuff coming out. And maybe it's just because every, you know, we had the pandemic and everybody was just writing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. That could that could be the reason. We we but it gives you me it's I mean, that's the uh the perfect combination for me is books and movies. because so, every time I read a book, I want to watch more movies. Every time I watch movies, I want to go yeah. to the book and find out what happened, you know. So, like for instance, exactly. on my watch list from your book is The Mortal Storm, which I've never seen, and I've never seen Confessions of a Nazi Spy. So those are two films I'm gonna uh hunt hunt up, hunt out and uh and yeah, watch. yeah mortal storm like i said is gonna is gonna hit like a ton of bricks confessions of a nazi spy is very much it, it plays like a like a like a newsreel almost there's mm. a lot of narration there's some really there's some really good uh punchy uh narration in it but i actually used it i just started teaching a class on the history of, of popular culture and cens- censorship in popular culture um and because i had written this book and done all this research i used confession with nazi spy and i had the students watch it and i was I was expecting them to not really like it, but just to understand why it was historically relevant. But they actually found it, you know, these 19, 20, 21 year olds today found it really fascinating. Really? So I was pleasantly surprised. You know, I thought I just liked it because I, you know, I'm neck deep in the research, but they, you know, they read, you know, one, one chapter from my book and, you know, watched the movie and found it really compelling. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, never underestimate students. That's my uh, mantra because they're always smart. They're smarter than you think. Um, Definitely. You know, there are a few idiots, but you know, that's just life. (laughs) 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 Try not, try not to say it in in class to their face. That's (laughs) no, never. Oh, being appropriate brilliant chris listen it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you i loved the book as well, I've, I've already i've already uh said several times and i think this is uh i, I think this isn't the last version we're gonna see and i don't think this is the last uh you know we're, we're gonna see this in something else a documentary or a, a drama or something i hope so so all that remains for me to do is to thank for the music, Elia Atkins, for the artwork, Ali Howard, and I will see you all after Christmas. Take care of yourselves. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.